Welcome everyone to the Zojo Talk podcast. I am Paul Lefevre, the Zojo developer evangelist. And in this episode, I have special guest Kimball Larson. Kimball has been a Zojo developer for eh, quite a while now and a software developer for it's about 15 years or so. Kimball, thank you for joining me on Zojo Talk. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, I like to start off my guests by putting them on the spot and asking them to just give a little bit of background of how they started uh, developing and how they started using Zojo. Well, um, the kind of uh, condensed version is I was a, a poor broke college student once upon a time, low these many years ago. And uh, I have a brother who was in chiropractic school, and he approached me with an idea for a project that uh, required a little software engineering to happen. And uh, he wanted to know if, if I knew a way to do it. And I had a couple of different ideas, but one of his big requirements was it's got to be cross-platform. I've got to be able to, to sell this to people on Mac and Windows. And at the time, this was, this was back in the real basic four days. Uh, yeah, that time, would have been like 2002 or three. Maybe. Uh, yeah. 2000, late 2001 was when he first approached me and we started on it in 2002, I believe. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, the, you know, surveying the market to see what tools were available that would, you know, produce cross-platform stuff. I found real basic and, um, have been using it ever since. Awesome. It's a similar time frame to a lot of people is uh, around the early 2000s when yeah, seem to have discovered the tool and have been using it for ever since then. Yep. <laughs> That's right about the time when I started using it actually was 2000, late 2001, early 2002, right after I had switched to Mac when I, I found uh, Real Basic at the time and started using it. I see. So you've seen the light. I've seen the light. Yeah, well, everyone knows my history of, uh, you know, a window, longtime Windows developer, .NET developer, and then, you know, just kind of said, this is all crap. I'm switching <laughs> Zojo all the time, 100%. All Zojo, nothing but Zojo. And it makes me a happier person now. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of stuff do you build with Zojo these days? Well, um, the... The main product that I build is called AccuGraph, and it is a, an acupuncturist and chiropractic aid um, that is used to um, diagnose acupuncture-y stuff. And uh, it, if you want me to get into all the technical stuff of that, I can, but uh, that's that's the main thing I do. It's a flagship product of my company where, where I work here, and um, that's where I spend 90% of my Zojo time is spent in, in the AccuGraph source space. Uh, it's a pretty large application. Uh, I counted up the source code a few weeks ago, actually, and it was uh, somewhere north of uh, 75,000 lines of code at this point. Um, we've gone through five major releases of it, um, and the most, <clears throat> most recent one has uh, got a heavily... Uh, heavily dependent on some cloud-based infrastructure that I built. So everything's all distributed and, and Zojo's at the core of all of it. So Nice. So how, uh, how long has this, this software been around? I guess, um, this was actually the, when my brother approached me, uh, the idea he had was for this software. Um, and so it's been around since uh, 2002 or three when we released the first version. Oh, so you've been continuing to work on that ever since, adding stuff mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. Now this is, Used by other offices as well. You sell yeah, so it, or is it? we we actually don't practice any acupuncture or chiropractic here. Uh, we develop this for the acupuncture market, and that's who we sell it to. Um, so we sell it worldwide, and we've got thousands of, of customers, thousands of users. 
Um, and it's used in, you know, in, in your acupuncture practice. Um, you, if you go and see an acupuncturist, um, some of the listeners may have before, and, and they may have had the acupuncturist graph them. That's kind of the, the nomenclature they use. Uh, let, me, let me do a graph on you and see what yeah. you're looking like. And, and if they have um, ever been graphed by an acupuncturist, that's my software. Cool. That, uh, I think we have a show title right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty neat. So you get to do that stuff full time. So what sort of uh, supplemental type things does Zojo use in conjunction with this? You're working with a database. You mentioned cloud stuff that you're relying on. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've, I've used Zojo, uh, to talk to lots of different things. So I've, I've interacted with MySQL databases. Usually that's when I'm doing a quick one-off thing where I need to, um, you know, parse some things and, and organize it well, uh, quick and dirty is just throw that into MySQL. But most of the time I'm using the embedded SQLite. Um, and now that I've gone distributed, I'm actually using the, the really uh, fantastic CubeSQL server, um, which allows me to have SQLite instances on the cloud. And the reason that's important for us is because we can encrypt them. And since we're using uh, medical uh, patient data, HIPAA compliance is real important for us. And, and so finding something that would encrypt the data on the servers um, was difficult. And, and CubeSQL fit that really nicely. So uh, in order to glue all of that together, um, I'm using PHP instead of the web components from, from Zojo for a number of reasons that I can get into if you're interested. But... Uh, I've, I've written a, a nice little PHP front-end uh, web service thing that uh, Zojo talks to, and, and it, it keeps all my data, data organized in the, in the CubeSQL server. Well, that's good. I mean, we always like to see Zojo work in conjunction with other tools. So mm -hmm. it's not like bad that you made a PHP thing that Zojo communicates with. That's a good thing. Hey, yeah. Zojo can talk to PHP and pretty much anything else, and, you know, you use what is appropriate for what you're trying to build to, right. to get the task done. And Sojo kind of connects up to all those components. Certainly I've been doing a lot of webinars and stuff recently showing people how to use Zojo to do that web service layer in Zojo itself. And that's helpful for people that don't necessarily know PHP and don't want to have to go learn it. Right. Sure. All right. So you've been doing that for quite a while now. Are you professionally trained as a software developer or is this kind of something where, you know, you, you said your brother had approached you and you're like, hmm, I'm going to look into this or? Yeah. So he approached me while I was finishing my computer science degree. So I do have a, a BS in computer science. And so I'm, you know, trained in all of that kind of thing. And, and my degree was, was much more theoretical um, as BSs in, in CS gen, generally tend to be. Um, but I do find that a lot of the things that, uh, that I've, focused on and learned in school have been directly applicable. Um, mostly the, the ability to figure out stuff on my own more than anything. That's what I got from my degree. Um, but the heavy reliance on object orientation and uh, good design patterns also is, has been huge in being able to be successful as, uh, as a developer on a long-term project that's, you know, serving thousands of people to be able to do that and to do it right really does require a lot of that theoretical background and and uh, and Zojo thankfully has made that possible though I do recall the dark days of 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 the early real basics when I started that there were some head scratching moments I I got to admit when uh, I I once tried to pass an array 
as an argument to a method and and you couldn't do that that was against the rules back then and yeah the uh, original compiler i don't believe that worked yeah, yeah it, it sure didn't and and i'm uh, it, it it kind of flummoxed me <laughs> how how in the world can you possibly you know you know convince me that this is a real object oriented thing and it won't even let me do simple stuff like that, but thankfully it's it's massively improved over the years, and now of course you can do all kinds of uh, much more sophisticated techniques. So, yeah, my my degree has really helped for for all of that. Yeah, definitely the uh, the compiler has improved tremendously over the years to be more almost you know industry standard mm-hmm. support for those type of features. You don't have to really worry about you know oddball behaviors like that you can just you know if it's a technique that's commonly used in any object-oriented programming language well it's likely to work similarly if not the same in dojo itself mm-hmm. yeah i i would agree too with your your statement about you know the educational background helping figure stuff out you, you see a lot these days not specifically with zojo necessarily but a lot of uh, people you know people call themselves programmers are building stuff using you know just almost, you know, by pieces, they get kits or pieces and they just kind of plug all these things together and, Oh, look, I made an app. And, and, and that's, it, it, it's hard not to laugh (laughs) when you, when you hear people say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a programmer. Oh, really? What, what do you, uh, you know, what are you working on? Oh, you know, I, I put together a website. Well, okay. That's not really programming necessarily. I mean, I kind of, but yeah, it's hard not to step on toes at the same time, and it's hard not to to be all hoity-toity uppity at people too. At the yeah, same time, it so. is a belly. It's certainly HTML. I get all hoity-toity, and with some people, <laughs> HTML is not a programming language. Knock it off. I, will, yeah. I certainly will do that. But more of other things where people get really dependent. I mean, maybe you saw it in the news recently where, uh, geez, I forget the specific tool. Uh, it was. I'm going to think it's something related to like Node or a JavaScript uh, framework or something. But mm-hmm. someone who published this popular JavaScript framework, it had a, a simple method in it. Oh, did I did some, see that. It's like that 13 lines padding. of code and it broke everything. Yeah, this method did nothing but some string padding. And they, like it was right adjusted string padding or something like that. Right. And the person who published this library like yanked it or pulled it. I don't I don't remember the specifics, but uh, they, they yanked it. And this broke projects all over the internet that were just kind of linking into this library and they were freaking out. <laughs> and then when you look at this code, it was, I don't even think it was 13 lines of code, Kimball. Yeah, it was, and, it was small. It was, it, it was, was tiny. I, I do remember reading that. But there was a lot of people that were, you know, flummoxed, stumped. Oh no, I, what their app broke mm-hmm. because some really rinky dink, simple library stopped working and they didn't understand maybe they probably understood the code itself but they didn't really understand how it all came together either so they kind of you know a lot of people were really upset about that and it started bringing up a lot of conversations on the internet about people the level of reliance and the uh, the heavy kit aspect of a lot of the particularly the web type stuff that's out there these days Right. I, I remember the reason I heard that was because I saw somebody published a brand new web service that uh, that you could call into that replaced that function. And so instead of uh, instead of having to make the method call into the, you know, the built in library function, now you could just instead you could just, you know, do a quick HTTP get 
and and hand it the string you wanted left padded and it would respond with the correctly padded string yeah i saw that i i took it as more of a kind of a it was making fun of this particular problem and web services all at the same time it was which and was if you, great if you took the time to read the documentation the guy put together it was hilarious don't drink anything while you read it you'll get all over your monitor <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the the uh, the thought of making a web service to do string, you know, handling right. like that is just ridiculous. But mm -hmm. but yeah, and of course, you know, the web service itself is probably likely to be less reliable than a package that you pull in somewhere. Of course. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was that was just funny. But having that background in education does allow you to kind of step back and think about stuff when you run into an issue. Yeah, more than, more than anything, I think it lets me be able to know that uh, there are lots and lots of tools to consider when it's time to get a job done. And, uh, you know, it's a common phrase. And one of my professors way back in the day was real. One of his favorite things to say was if if the only ha tool you have is a hammer, then the whole world looks like a nail. And his idea there was try not to have only a hammer in your toolbox, because a lot of times the hammer is the wrong tool for the job. If you need to cut a piece of wood in half, a hammer is not going to do a good job. Uh, if you need to put a screw, you know, a delicate little screw into, you know, something, a hammer is not going to be the right tool. So uh, more than anything, that, that education has allowed me to not be focused on the tool, but rather be focused on finding the right solution and developing the correct technique, even if that means I have to develop the tool myself from scratch, which I have had to do. Right, yeah. Often you have to build your own tools using the tools you use to solve a problem. Very exactly. That's a common thing we hear about people using Zojo for because it's so quick to you know throw together an app and get it up and running. Mm -hmm. That people often end up using Zojo to build a tool that they're then using to solve a completely different problem that they maybe started with. Yep. One thing I like to remind people is uh, there's always more than one way to solve a problem. Of with course, software. yeah. And that you, you you're saying of course, but not a lot of people don't think don't that realize that. Of yeah. course, they're like I only know how to do it this one way. And if they run into some difficulty in that one way for one reason or another, completely stumped, don't know what to do. And um, sometimes you got to be able to back up, you know, back up out of that alley and look again, and you know, try a completely different path, try something a different way, with the and have that confidence that you're still going to end up where you need to be. Right. Right. You know, yeah. is, is if you're relying all on the pre-built stuff, it's hard to get that level of confidence because you didn't build that stuff to begin with. And then you're like, Oh, is there something else? What am I going to do? Oh no, I'll never get this done. And, right. and that never, ever happens. I know when I was doing consulting, my wife was really, really nervous for me to start doing consulting, you know, cause I had a, I had a .NET you know, regular job at a company. And mm -hmm. she's like, how are you going to build stuff? You know, you never know what you're going to get asked to build. You know, uh, what if you can't build it? And I'm like, I think I'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of the, the, you know, my favorite part of the challenge is because I also do a lot of consulting on the side. And unfortunately, I, I can't talk about a lot of the projects I've worked right. on. But, um, you know, in the consulting stuff, it's it's a lot. It's fun for me because it gives me a new challenge and a new problem to solve. And I've been, you know, when you work on a project for 12 or 13 years, like I have with AccuGraph, um, you kind of get entrenched with here's the way it's done, right? And so there is a, a specific problem set, and I've already solved 
just about all of it. And so most of the, the code changes I'm doing now are, are kind of incremental in nature, and they're just augmenting or adding to what's already there. But the core of what it does, I mean, there's code in my source space that has not changed in 13 years. I wrote it, you know, back then, and it works perfectly, and there's no reason to change it. Um, and so when I when I do some consulting, that's nice because it gives me a completely new arena to go and play in. And frequently, the problems that need to be solved there are are vastly different from anything I've ever encountered. And and that I think is what I enjoy the most about engineering, where uh, being able to come up with unique uh, and elegant solutions to uh, interesting problems and and having zojo in my tool belt there is is phenomenal as far as uh, being able to quickly um, put together something that is going to prove out that the concept will work so uh, i do use it rather heavily for proof of concept stuff and then uh, frequently the the client will say yeah that looks great let's put some lipstick on it and, and publish it and and that's what we do so yeah we we i, I generally push them towards zojo most People approach me and say, I've got this idea. I've never heard of it before. Um, but uh, when they see how quickly I can get stuff cranked out and uh, and how well it works, they're generally very, very happy with the results. Yeah, that, that's the same thing I found as well. Is a, You know, when you're doing stuff like that, people care about the results. And mm -hmm. they, they need the tool. They need the app. They need the piece of software to help their business in some way, usually mm -hmm. to, you know, make them money, <laughs> keep right. them going. and. If it turns out that you can provide that to them easier, faster, and for them using something like Zojo, they're going to be like, awesome. <laughs> I, I got no problem with that. And uh, that, that definitely is a common thing. I found you didn't want to, you know, come blaring into, you know, conversations with clients or proposals or anything and lay out all this technical stuff right up front, you know, what tools you're yeah, using no. and stuff. It goes over their head. They don't, they don't know it. They don't understand it. And it scares them. And... Mm -hmm. So you want to start at the beginning, you know, just taking the time to understand what the heck is it they're trying? What problem? What's their problem? And, you know, and, and interestingly, a lot of not a lot of times I've run across a few clients who um, who I've decided not to work with. And it's because they come from the mindset of they they have a little bit of experience with some engineering in the past and perhaps they used a tool. Um, and so I've, you know, there was one particular client sticking out in my mind who was a, a former, um, I, I don't know if he was a .NET developer or if he was, uh, I don't remember the, the particular tool that he really knew fairly well, but he had worked using this, this particular uh, tool for a number of years. But he, what he wanted to do was beyond his own skill set. And so he wanted somebody else to come and do it, but he wanted them to do it using this particular tool because that's what he knew, right? Never mind. That's the wrong tool for the job. Uh, whatever it was, I, I don't remember the specifics. Uh, I just remember thinking, you know, I'm I'm not going to be able to work well with this guy because he's stuck on the hammer and he isn't willing to look in the toolbox to see what else is available that might do a better job. And I think that's important to consider. Yeah, yeah, I definitely had the same boat. I had uh, remember one client that had a specific architecture they wanted to implement for how something would work mm -hmm. and and i didn't think it was the best idea for what they were trying to build so i proposed an alternative mm -hmm. and they, they were somewhat receptive they said yeah yeah we think yours are going to work but we really want to stick with ours and I, and I said okay well forget it i'm out 
I'm not building yours. You'll have to find someone else. I think it has too many problems that I'll have to deal with later. And right. so I was out. And, and you know, I, I'm comfortable with that decision because you don't want to just, you know, grab and build everything. It's, you know, you often hear the phrase, the customer is always right. Mm-hmm. And Except I, for when they're wrong. <laughs> I think there's very few situations when they're always right. I mean, yeah, the customer may always be paying you, uh, but that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean they're right. And sometimes, you know, you can go down a really bad, dark path if you just, you know, are building everything they want because right. you know, they, might, they might not know what they want or they, they may be utterly mistaken. And if you're the expert, it's kind of your job to not really say hey you're wrong do it my way but to explain to them why an alternative approach might make more yeah, sense <laughs> and a lot of times you need to dumb it down an awful lot and try and use analogies and and i i like to go to cars because everybody understands cars so whenever somebody's not understanding something or can't understand why what they're proposing is we'll call it less optimal um then uh, i'll generally try and think up a quick car analogy and and that usually is pretty effective for helping people understand why what they're proposing is not a great idea yeah, I had a client that had sent me. A, they had a, they had written a product that was in .NET, and they wanted a Mac version. Mm. And you know, I I know .NET pretty well, so I was sure I could handle that. And then uh, said, "Why don't you send me your you know .NET code so I can take a look at it? You know, I'm not necessarily going to port it, but you know, I want to review it, take a look at it. Well, I look at it, and it, you know, I fire up Visual Studio, I click on the project, open it, and it's not opening. Mm-hmm. Minutes, minutes later, the project opened. Really? And I'm like, that's really weird. So I started clicking around. It turned out the, I don't say all of it, but almost the entire code was in like whatever the equivalent is to the main method in, oh, in this my project. Goodness, really? So it was thousands upon thousands of lines of code in just a single method. You know, just wow. this procedural, procedural blob of code. And, uh, you know, I came back and I said, I can't work with this. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I said that this is untenable. I said, I, what I can do is, you know, build you an all new app yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's structured we'll properly and will run on both Mac and Windows, mm-hmm. uh, assuming you can provide me the rules for how this app works and I can, you know, run it to see. And they, they agreed to that. I ended up building them that. And mm-hmm. that's that's much better. But that was an example of, you know, the customer wasn't adamant, luckily, that, you know, you stick with that. And and I think I, I hopefully, apparently did a, a decent job explaining, you know, why. And I, and probably why they came to me in the first place was, you know, they probably programmed themselves into a corner, so to speak. Right. Well, yeah, they had, it sounds like. You know, I've done it. I've done the other. I've gone the other extreme, though. Sometimes, where you're you're trying to make things so segregated and so separated, as far as you know, uh, components of your app have one job and one job only, and you don't want to either duplicate that job anywhere else. So anything that needs to do that particular job always calls that one component. But I've taken that sometimes to the extreme and had to to backtrack where I've had you know a chain sixteen or eighteen methods deep where. You know, I just kept breaking it up and breaking it up and breaking it up uh, to the point that it was just kind of silly that I only had one entry point for one method and it had to call 16 more uh, in a straight line. You know, it would call B and B would call C and C would call D, even though there was nothing else using B, C and D anywhere. And so right. I, I have gone the other direction where instead of sticking it all in one, I try and stick one line of code in millions of methods and it's going to be a headache as well. <laughs> 
Yeah, that that certainly would be the the polar opposite, and also not really a great design pattern either, because <laughs> yeah. then you're essentially you invented your own programming language, <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that no one else could ever use. I remember there was a company I worked with. We were using a tool called Power Builder at the time, and we had this so-called framework for building the the GUI of the app. And I don't remember; it was designed by you know, the the uh, senior level dudes. I was uh, a young and fresh out of school at the time. And they had built this app that was kind of database based. So it would load up some of the UI structure from the database. And, uh, mm. and so like you, you'd list in the database, the specific windows that were in the app and uh, it would read through that and That's create a window. Weird. And then it would map to a database table and show the data in the table. And it was, it was really weird. And, mm -hmm. You know, it worked okay, but it was weird. I mean, try debugging through this because yeah, no, no way. <laughs> you end up debugging into the framework every time, and then debugging through database calls to figure out what it's reading from the table, and then what other window it's actually going to open. It was kind of a nightmare. And this, the architecture team eventually, and it, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about how to properly phase it. At the time, we were not making great use of what would be considered classes in Zojo. In Power mm -hmm. they had a different name that's escaping me at the moment. But we weren't making a great use of the classes. And I came in and I said, you know, we really ought to start moving some of this business logic out of the UI windows and whatnot and put it into classes. Non-visual objects, that's what they were called in Power Builder. And, oh, okay. Non-visual objects. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Why do I have such a strange name? And... Uh, <laughs> So I, you know, I proposed that to the architecture team and, you know, I thinking at the time, okay, you know, just use classes, you know, well, they had to come up with a, an architecture to use the classes. So wow. they came up with a database method to call stuff in the classes. So oh. you would, you would have to populate tables in the app. And then when you clicked on a button, it would look up the button in the database, look up what method that button should call in the database, go back to the framework, figure out where that method was, instantiate wow. the class. Call. Oh, my God. It was a, you, it was awful. You, I don't think I lasted. My, you've just described purgatory as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think I, I don't. I did. I did not last there much longer after that because yeah. I was like, I can't deal with this. Is this is just crazy? And it, it was an amazing technical feat, though. I guess is probably where I'm going with my story. Uh, but it was just unusable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I you know I learned model view controller approaches. Uh, I don't remember, I don't even remember when I first ran across it. I think I was still in school. Um, and that seems so logical and clean. And to this day, that's how I organize things. Even in my Zojo apps, I will, um, instead of putting code into the window, I consider that to be the view more than anything. And so I will almost always write backing classes that are the controllers. And anything a window needs to do, it calls into the controller to do it. Uh, any logic, any business logic needs to happen. And then, of course, uh, all the data lives in a database layer that... Uh, you know, keep segregated. There's never logic in the database. That's 
that's that's a cardinal sin if you ask me <laughs> <laughs> well don't go down that path with people that love their store procedures though i mean yeah that i mean stored procedures when you're manipulating the data directly there is a time and place for that of course but you know if you want to update the contents of a label perhaps in a you know a window that's far flung somewhere in the in the app the database darn well better not be doing that that's got to live in a in an application controller somewhere so right yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to have stuff split like that. And of course, you know, the practical benefit for people that, you know, you're like, oh, well, that's all hoity-toity, you know. The benefit is if you've got your stuff split like that, well, then when it comes time to maybe make a web version of your desktop app or an iOS mm -hmm. version, you've already got that, you know, controller code isolated out. And right. it allows you to just more, you can focus then on the UI for this other platform and then, maybe very easily hook it up to the controllers you've already built and sharing the code that way. Yep. Now I have found myself falling into the pitfalls where you start a quick little proof of concept to get something up on the screen so that the client can see it and, and, and interact with it. And in those, when you're working so quickly, uh, I do tend to just throw it all into the window and just, you know, I'll come back later and clean it up. And I like to think that I do come back later and separate those things out, but I'll be honest, sometimes I just don't. And it and that's okay and it works fine. But when I'm when I'm gonna be designing something that I know either other people are gonna be touching or is gonna to need to stick around for a long time, I, I do try and be pretty strict about MVC compliance that way. Well, it's a tipping point thing. I mean, you hear about it referred to often as like technical debt. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, yeah, you can take the fast way to build something really quickly. And, and that has its benefits. You built it quickly. It's fast. It didn't mm -hmm. cost as much money. It didn't take as much time. But if it turns out that becomes something you're relying on for a really long time or it becomes mission critical, it often is worth, you know, paying back that technical debt and going back right. and fixing those things. But, you know, a lot of places won't. They'll just leave it and, you know, just keep, you know, adding on stuff. And then you end up with the, the house with the crappy foundation. And then eventually... You know, it it's a nightmare where you you don't you you know no one wants to be on that team, no one wants to work on that project, and, and right, not, right. You, don't want it, you try you and know. build uh, try and build more and more stories onto the house, and eventually it tips over. Yeah, so I mean, and that's tricky. And, they, and going back and fixing it while you know no. the app is live and in production, I mean, that that can be a challenging and maybe fun, but it also can be a disaster with people trying to use it. <laughs> right, of course. You know, over the history of, of AccuGraph, the, the main product I work on, you know, the first release of that thing was very primitive. Um, it was just barely enough to prove to the market that we could actually do what, what needed to be done. And then when it came time to, to put out version two, there were a bunch of new features we wanted to add. And I wound up having to go back and rewrite or reorganize at least 80% of, uh, of the first version's code base. So AccuGraph 2 came out and things were lots more organized and cleaner. And that made the transition to 3 quite a bit better because I had, at that point, separated everything out pretty strictly and had business all in one spot and all of the display in another spot and all of the database in a third. Um, and and then over the history of of other releases with, with 4 and then 5 eventually, um, I think I've rewritten almost the entire application at least twice now. Um, and, and not necessarily rewritten, but certainly reorganized. 
there are, like I mentioned earlier, there are some some kind of holy classes that will never be touched again, that they are where they are and they're never going to be touched. They've been there for 13 years. And at this point, I'm too afraid to ask kind of what's <laughs> going on inside that method. But um, yeah, it it's an iterative process whenever you've got a long-term project and, and being able to iterate um, effectively does require a good tool. And, and Zojo does provide that, thankfully. Um, and it has gotten better at doing that and being a good uh, scaffolding or architecture to let me be able to organize things effectively. And that's that's been a grateful, welcome thing for me. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, fir- the first versions you would have used wouldn't have even had the ability to work easily with source control. Um, no. <laughs> which, no, no. <laughs> which, is, which is something you absolutely need when you've got projects of this scale because you have to have the trust that you know if you screw something up you can go back to what worked or you can you know split your code essentially or do a branch as they call it or something like that so you can you know works and stuff right leave the working branch alone don't monkey with it (laughs) set up a new one where you're experimenting and testing and if and if you completely hose it there you know, the people relying on the current working version aren't going to be, you know, messed up should you have to go and fix something. So stuff yeah, like back that. When I started, back when I started, it was all um, CVS was our source control. And that's what I was using. I built my own CVS Linux box. Yeah, I, I had a Linux box in my house. And so I, I set that up as a, as a CVS repository. And that's what I was checking anything and everything into. And, and that worked as far as snapshotting the code. But it was not effective for being able to diff what I'd done. And so if I ever made a mistake, I had to just check out the whole project again into a new repository and figure out what I'd done differently and then trying to compare things. And it was a nightmare. So thankfully things are a lot better now with both with Git and, uh, and the source source control friendliness of, of more recent Zojo projects. That's, it's really been helpful. Yeah. I remember CVS. That was, uh... <laughs> I bet it's not a fond memory. No, I'm trying to, I mean, back, I started coding in the professionally in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. And at the time we weren't using any sort of source control. I mean, oh, man. that, that was not a common thing back then. Right. Right. And, uh, I remember we would, uh, you know, have files that were renamed, you know, old oh. or, or stuff <laughs> like that. And it was just, you know, it's stuff you still see people do today that, you know, aren't experienced with source control or don't feel they have the need for it. But, you know, we used to do that back in the nineties and then we had added a source control system. MKS source integrity. I have no idea if they're still around or anything. And I don't know why they never even heard of that one. I don't even know. I don't even know why that I still remember that. I got a weird memory for things like that, but I remember we used (laughs) that one and it had a, it was a locking source tool. Unlike pretty much all of them nowadays where, you know, it's, you know, Anyone can grab anything and you worry about conflicts when you check in. This one, right. check when you went to check something out, it would actually put a physical lock on it. I, maybe the Microsoft Visual Source Safe did that. Yeah, I think I think it did. But yeah. Which was, so I kind of got used to that pattern of working as did the team. So you'd be like, oh, I can't check that out. Paul has that. And so you'd be, you know, goof off the rest of the day or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> find, find something else to work on. And uh but then when we had to switch to CVS, uh, the team still wanted that locking. Oh, and, really? and CVS does not, if I remember properly, does not want 
to work that way. No, I, I think CVS is very much resolved conflicts on check-in. And, yeah, and that's, that, what, that's that, my that pattern. It, that pattern it persisted through subversion as well. And yeah, thank goodness for Git. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, so I, I remember, I seem to recall some awful times where maybe we even tried to make CVS do a lock on checkout rather than a merge on commit kind of method. I, I don't wow. I, I think I've successfully blocked those memories though, because I can't uh, recall exactly what we did, but you're in recovery there. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm in recovery, but eventually, you know, we switched to using Microsoft's team foundation server, which mm-hmm. was quite, which is quite nice if you're, you know, using Microsoft's tool sets and whatnot. But these days, Git is Git is it as uh, Justin Elliott once told me, and I I tend to like that little quote. Yep, that's a good. I uh, use Git, and I still use Subversion a lot as well. And I've used that one the longest at this point, so I'm mm-hmm. more, more comfortable with it. Git Git is definitely it, but I also find Git to be it can get overwhelming. It's a uh, it's got a lot of stuff in it, and the tools it for does, it yeah. generally are. They can be also overwhelming with, you know, they expose all the features or something like that. And it's just like, <laughs> and what you were describing too about your first version of AccuGraph, that's another uh, term you hear people throw about, the minimally viable product where you want to just kind that's, of build the least, yep. the least amount of thing that you can get out there to show people you can, one, build this, that this will work, this will, you know, it won't do everything that you need necessarily, but it's a start and mm-hmm. Zojo can be great for people that are looking to do that. Cause you can quickly bang something out to show people. And, uh, that that's important. I, I've worked at a lot of companies where, you know, I was using the, the so-called required tool set. You know, I mentioned power builder, visual studio. I still use Zojo or real basic or whatever it was back at the time. And, uh, I still mm-hmm. used it often to, prototype something you know we'd get a spec down from you know the business analyst whatnot. i might mock it up in zojo first just to sit with them after and say mm-hmm. this is what you're thinking rather than attempt to shoot you know especially when i had that crazy framework i was dealing with <laughs> rather than attempt to yeah, go through yeah. all that work to shoehorn it into you know whatever slower methodology it was for creating the app uh, this could be a great way to, to demonstrate stuff. And I even built many internal utilities that ended up just being uh, kept that way that just were used because it worked. Right. I actually ran into someone at a, was it last week or the week before I went to a local uh, agile software development meeting and I mm-hmm. ran into someone I worked with about 15 years ago. And we were oh, chatting. Really? And he was asking what I'm doing. I said, yeah, you know, I do this stuff at Zojo now. And he's like, oh, are you still making those great utilities? And he, he, he rattled off the name of a utility I had made that he was like, that was the best thing ever. <laughs> and I, I only remember the wow. name because I had called it Spew because I like to make silly <laughs> names for things. And it was, a, it was called Spew because it was an acronym, SPU, for Stored Procedure Utility. Okay. And we were working with Oracle. I don't remember exactly what the tool did anymore. But obviously, something related to procedures, but <laughs> obviously, something this guy liked a lot. Yeah. And yeah, he was like, "That made my life so much easier." I'm like, "Great!" I don't remember what it did, but <laughs> glad it helps. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was funny because yeah, that would have been uh, yeah easily 15 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Mind how time flies, huh? Yeah. Well. 
Before we wrap up real quick, I, I see here on your little list of fun things you like to do is that you like to play with anything that's remote controlled. I do. Yeah. I've, uh, I've always, since I was a kid, little kid, I've had a fascination with, with remote control toys and things. And uh, I remember my first remote control car back in the early eighties when I was, you know, short, uh, was the Lobo two from Sears. And this was a Christmas present I got. And, and man, this sucker was incredible. It was a rear wheel drive kind of buggy style, uh, remote control car with the big brick of NICAD batteries and uh yep. that it it was a lot of fun to play with out in the front yard of the house kind of thing since then I've I've moved on to kind of bigger and better stuff I've I now fly RC planes um we've got a lot of big parks around here and I've got a garage full of planes and uh I you know loved going after work and and going to just grab a plane or two and and run down to the park and flying for a little while and um I still enjoy, you know, remote control cars and, and I've even had a boat or two. And uh, so, yeah, kind of a fascination with all things RC. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I've never flown a RC plane. I, I kind of think I might like to, there's a, there's a big uh, sports field. that's kind of a across the way from us that mm -hmm. I'll often see people there that show up with their planes and rockets is another thing. People like to launch little, those little mm -hmm. rockets there. Like, that looks like that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I've had a lot of remote control cars in my day. I tried to get my son hooked on those, but so far those haven't stuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my my kids like to come with me to go to a fly, uh, but mostly because there's a play set there, is you know a big playground at the park, and so they'll, uh, you know, you want to come with me to the park? We're going to go fly for a little while, and yeah, yeah, that's great. And we all run across the street over to the park, and uh, before you know it, I'm standing in the field all by myself and the kids are run off on the playground and uh, you know, everybody's having a good time. So that's fine. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, thank you, Kimball, for this uh, enlightening talk, enlightening <laughs> Zojo talk as it is. I uh, think we had some grand conversations that hopefully people will uh, enjoy. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed it. And I hope to see a lot of people at the upcoming uh Zojo Conference uh, in down in Texas. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, XTC 2016 is in Texas the first week of October in Houston, Texas, actually. And the show notes will have a list of the sessions, so you can check out sessions at XTC, see what makes sense. We got a lot of new presenters this year, a lot of different sessions. So if you uh, haven't been to XTC recently, might be something there that you're going to find interesting. I know I'm spending a lot of time with my Raspberry Pi trying to come up with a great session on that. For yeah, that's one I, I would love to hear a little bit more about. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kimball. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate the, the time. Have a great day, everyone.